بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم التسليم على سيدنا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين وبعد الحمد لله Our last class which was a couple of weeks ago we were looking into the first expeditions of the Muslims and the early ghazawat that occurred before the great battle of Badr. And there's a lot of material to cover regarding what led up to the battle of Badr, the small battle of Badr, what triggered the larger battle of Badr and all of the details in between. But before we move on, I wanted to address a few things that were brought up in the previous class. We always look at principles here and foundations so that we understand things accurately. And in nothing that we cover regarding the life of the Prophet are we ever going to be apologetic? We do not apologize for history. We do not apologize for the actions of he who is inspired by his creator subhanahu wa ta'ala. But we want to address a few things so that we have the correct tasawwur, the correct understanding and conception of what was going on and the basis for those actions. So someone had asked a question a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the ghazawat and the nature of these expeditions. Because these expeditions were attempts to do what exactly? Raid caravans. The attempt was to raid caravans. So the question came up, why? Why raid caravans? You know, isn't that like stealing? Isn't that like highway robbery? And is it the case that the Muslims were only going out to take what was seized of their own property? Or were they seizing other things? So we want to address that issue so that we have a proper conception of what is leading up to the Battle of Badr. So first, let us remember that the Muslims were relatively small in number when they were in the city of Mecca. And during those 13 years, at least 10 of those years, they were severely persecuted on many different levels. That's number one. Number two, the Hijrah from Mecca to Medina came about through divine permission. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave the permission for the Muslims to migrate to Mecca, from Mecca to Medina, and the Prophet sallallahu then gave the command to make the hijrah from Mecca to Medina. But the Quran clearly establishes that the Muslims were also expelled from Medina. It's important to understand this. It wasn't just a voluntary exit from the city of Mecca to Medina there was also an element of expulsion involved in this. And this is mentioned in the Qur'an in several places. And it's by understanding the nature of that expulsion and what happened that we understand the nature of the caravan raids. So we go to Surah Al-Baqarah and we see in a verse that we're going to be revisiting quite soon today, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الشَّهْرِ الْحَرَامِ قِتَالٌ فِيهِ قُلْ قِتَالٌ فِيهِ كَبِيرٌ وَصَدٌ عَنْ سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَكُفْرٌ بِهِ وَالْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ وَإِخْرَاجُ أَهْلِهِ مِنْهُ 
akbaru indallah wal fitnatu akbaru min al-qatl so this is a verse we're going to be seeing later on in the story of the the ghazwa of nakhla which leads to badr but in this verse that was revealed in connection to that event allah ta'ala says they ask you they ask the prophet sallallahu about fighting in the sacred months so allah ta'ala answers by saying Say to them that fighting in the sacred months is an enormity. It's a major sin. And preventing people from the path of Allah. And disbelief in Him. And preventing people from the Masjid al-Haram. وَإِخْرَاجُ أَهْلِهِ مِنْهُ And expelling its people from it is greater in the sight of Allah. So the shahid, the relevant part of this verse is وَإِخْرَاجُ أَهْلِهِ مِنْهُ Allah affirms that they had expelled the Muslims from Mecca. Was it them rounding up the Muslims and forcibly moving them from Mecca to Medina? No. But it was creating an atmosphere and an environment that was escalating the persecution further and further to where the Muslims had to leave to save their deen. We move further on in the Quran and we see in the third chapter, right after Al-Baqarah, in Surah Ali Imran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the reward of those who do certain actions. And He says, Those who migrate and who are removed or expelled from their abodes, their homes. Allah mentions them and it mentions this expulsion. We go further into the Quran in Surah Al Mumtahana. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions about these people, They remove the messenger and you. They expel the messenger and you. So we establish from these verses that there was an expulsion involved because of the persecution. That's number two. Point number three is later in Medina, after the hijrah, in Surah Al-Hajj, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave Muslims, gave the Prophet وسلم, and thereby the Muslims permission to fight and states in that verse that it is because they were persecuted and expelled from their homes just because they said, Rabbuna Allah, our Lord is Allah. Alladheena ukhriju min diyarihim bighayri haqqin illa an yaqulu Rabbuna Allah. Again, Allah affirms in connection to the even the permission for fighting, that it's because they are the ones who were expelled from their homes without right, only because they said, our Lord is Allah. So again, there's this expulsion. Number four, the Quran establishes that the Muslim's property was confiscated. So someone had asked, is it, were the raids only Muslims getting back what was taken? The answer is, well, yes and no. It wasn't just that, but indeed the Qur'an affirms that the mushrikun of Quraysh had confiscated the wealth of the Muslims. This is mentioned in Surah Al-Hashr. Allah Ta'ala says, لِلْفُقَرَاءِ الْمُهَاجِرِينَ الَّذِينَ أُخْرِجُوا مِنْ دِيَارِهِمْ وَأَمْوَالِهِمْ يَبَتَغُونَ فَضْلًا مِنَ اللَّهِ وَرِضْوَانًا وَيَنْصُرُونَ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ أُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الصَّادِقُونَ in Surah Al-Hashr, Allah Ta'ala reveals, For the poor among the muhajirun, the, the immigrants, 
who were what? They were removed again. They were removed from their homes. So they were separated from their homes and separated from their amwal, their wealth. Right? And they seek the bounty of Allah and His good pleasure and they give aid to Allah and His Messenger. They are the truthful ones. So this verse affirms again that they were expelled, but it adds to that fact that they were they had their wealth taken from them as well. So these caravan raids were not unprovoked attacks. Expulsion from lands and confiscation of property were traditionally very common and widely accepted causes for war. And we could venture to say that that's still the case today. What are the causes of war? Right, what's going on between Russia and Ukraine? Let, like, let's trace the history there to see what led to what's going on. It has to do with control of resources, of power, of wealth. So when these things are taken from people and they're persecuted, these are often causes of conflict. And Allah affirms that in the Qur'an. So if we go back to that verse in Surah Al-Hajj that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, in the one we just recited, we see that Allah Ta'ala gives the idhn, the divine permission for fighting because they were wronged. Permission is given to those uh, who are fought because they are wronged and indeed Allah has power to give them aid. Who are these people? They're the Muslims who were removed from their homes without right only because they said our Lord is Allah. And it is for this reason that the Muhajirun that migrated from Mecca to Medina reached Medina and most of them, if not all of them, were destitute. They were poor. The wealthy among the, um, the, the, the Sahaba became wealthy after setting up in Medina and they may have had businesses back in Mecca, but they lost these businesses, they lost property, they lost great amounts of wealth. So they came to Medina and they were destitute. And we've established from those narrations that the Ansar were very generous and that Allah paired them together in packs of brotherhood. And the Prophet ﷺ, seeing that pairing between them, also knew that the Muhajirun would have to support themselves at some point. They couldn't just live off of the Ansar forever. At some point, they have to establish themselves economically and be independent. And that goal of helping the Muhajirun attain that economic independence, it seemed best and most morally achievable by recovering what was theirs by raiding the caravans of Quraysh. The easiest and best way to become more economically viable and to sustain themselves is to simply recover what was taken, right? And that is how we understand those caravan raids. Now, what is being recovered? What, is, what are they attempting to get after to take back to Medina? We can look at that from two ways. We see expeditions, Ghazawat and Saraya, to capture by force the livestock 
and the belongings that Quraysh had seized after the Muslims left Mecca for Medina, which they were taking in their caravans up north to sell. We have narrations like this. So there's property, there's belongings, there's all sorts of uh, assets that Quraysh took from the Muslims who had to leave Mecca. And they're packing these assets, this wealth and property, in their caravans going north to Sham with the intention of selling them. So the Muslims are going out to intercept those caravans and take what is lawfully theirs. So they have their money back. That's one way of framing it. The other way is to look at it as expeditions to capture by force livestock and belongings in the caravan that held the same economic value as what had been seized by Quraysh. So let's say, just to give an imaginary scenario here, let's say a poor, uh, let's say a, a muhajir from Mecca left behind 25 heads of sheep. That's money. That's, that's mal. Is he going to get the exact same 25 sheep? You know, the same markings of hair? No. But if he takes sheep, equivalent number of sheep, he's taken back what was taken from him, taking from the same people who took from him. So if not the exact item of property, it is the economic value of the property that was seized from the Muslims as they left. And we can affirm both of these because there's narrations in the Sira works that mention the belongings as being the belongings of the Muslims. And there are narrations which describe them as the goods of Quraysh. So the nisbah, the, the ascription in, in some narrations, ascribes that wealth to the Muslims that was taken. And some narrations give the, the nisbah, the ascription, to Quraysh, the goods of Quraysh. Either way, you know, we affirm both of these. So this, inshallah, answers at least the first part of the question of why up until now, up until the Battle of Badr, when we look at all of these Saraya and Ghazawat, why are the only ones going out the Muhajirun? Right? We mentioned this in the previous classes, that in all of these Ghazawat and Saraya that are occurring, in every single one of them, the only people going out by the, Prophet, the Prophet's command وسلم, are Muhajirun. There's no Ansar going out. And this answers one reason why that's the case. Because they're going out to get what is theirs. The Ansar, and you're going to see this later on in the lead up to Badr, because there is this, there is this growing awareness of what's at stake. And the Ansar, there's this internal conversation. You know, are the Ansar, as Ansar, only responsible for protecting the Prophet ﷺ in Medina? Are they also responsible for going out? And that comes up later in Badr. But until now, it's just the Muhajirun. So let's recap this a little bit. You have 13 years of persecution, or at least 10 years, because the first three was a secret da'wah. 10 years or so of persecution in Mecca. You have a communal boycott of Muslims for a period of time where they were suffering famine in Mecca. Then you have them virtually expelled from Mecca and forced to migrate, leaving behind their belongings. And then you have the Prophet ﷺ himself making hijrah 
being pursued by Quraysh and they are looking for him with the intention of apprehending him and killing him. So he's leaving under those circumstances. And the property of the Muhajirun is seized. And we also see that those individuals who tried to make hijrah but were unsuccessful in getting out of Mecca, what happened to them? Some of them were captured and they were unjustly imprisoned in Mecca until we have the very first uh, special operation where the Muslims won volunteers to go and do a prison breakout and get them out of Mecca and bring them to Medina. So you have that. And then you have Quraysh now sending letters to the hard-headed mushrikun, those who remained in Medina as mushrikun and munafiqun, encouraging them to revolt and overthrow the Prophet And you have this threat of political intrigue between the Jewish tribes and the potential threat of them gaining power and expelling the Prophet in the Muslims. Expelling him and the Muslims. Was that a threat in, in, in their imagination or was there a basis for that, for that threat? There's a basis for that threat because the Qur'an reveals that that was a long-standing practice of the Yahud. Because we see in Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah Ta'ala reminds Bani Israel about this fact. ثُمَّ أَنْتُمْ هَأُولَاءِ تَقْتُلُونَ أَنفُسَكُمْ وَتُخْرِجُونَ فَرِيقًا مِنْكُمْ مِنْ دِيَارِهِمْ So Allah establishes that one of the practices of Bani Israel at the time was they would fight each other and they would also expel a group among them from the land. So it wasn't lost on the Muslims that that was a possibility because they had done it before to their own. So what about those who are not their own, right? If the Jewish communities were fighting among themselves and Allah says that they were fighting among themselves and one group among them expelled the other group, what do you think would have happened if they gained power and fought an outsider group? Would they not expel them? That threat was there. So you have to consider all of these things as informing the decisions to go out and intercept these caravans. Now that threat of expulsion is mentioned in history in connection to Bani Israel. But then that threat of expulsion became a present reality later on during the Battle of Khandaq. So it's there, it's in the air. Now, going further, in Surah Al-Anfal, which is revealed in connection with Badr, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this, إِذْ يَمْكُرُ بِكَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لِيُثْبِتُوكَ أَوْ يَقْتُلُوكَ أَوْ يُخْرِجُوكَ When the disbelievers plotted against you to imprison you or kill you أَوْ يُخْرِجُوكَ or expel you. They planned and Allah planned and Allah is the best of planners. And lastly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in this, the next chapter after Surah Al-Anfal, Surah Al-Tawbah, أَلَا تُقَاتِلُونَ قَوْمًا نَكَثُوا أَيْمَانَهُمْ وَهَمُّوا بِإِخْرَاجِ الرَّسُولِ وَهُمْ بَدَأُوكُمْ أَوَّلَ مَرَّةِ Right? وَهَمُّوا Allah says, will you not fight against a people uh, who betrayed their pact, their covenant, and thought and 
to expel you, to expel you, and they initiated this the first time. So these are all looming threats and issues going back into the past that inform the decision after the divine permission to go and raid these caravans to take what is lawfully theirs, either what is direct property or has the economic value of what was taken from them. So, and we say all of this because we want to situate the battles properly, right? Warfare is generally seen as some taboo, politically incorrect issue today, but we have to understand the conditions of ancient Arabia when there were no standing militaries, there were no standing governments, there were no, was no police force, there was no central government. So every group of people, every tribe, every alliance, they had to fend for themselves. The fear of expulsion was a real and present fear, and the consequences of expulsion went far beyond just losing your house, right? You know, think about it today. If Allah forbid someone was to just show up at your house and kick you out, yeah, you'd go somewhere else, right? You'd have a hard time. Wouldn't be easy, but you could go somewhere else. But in a tribal society, where do you go? Because wherever you settle, it has to be in a tribal area. So that's an alliance. And if you're not allied with those people, you're not just going to set up. So you have to consider these factors. And this is all to say that the caravan raids were not acts of brigandry. They were not acts of hiraba, of, of highway brigandry. And one of the things that clarifies this really well is uh, how this corresponds with even uh, man-made laws. There are man-made laws that are actually exactly in agreement with this as uh, some permitted act. So you have, for instance, a international maritime law called the guerre de course in French. And this refers to a right in times of war for individual owners of ships to arm those ships in order to attack the merchant ships of an enemy power when they are licensed to do so by what's called a letter of mark, which means an authorization by the leader, the sultan or whoever. So in all maritime wars, so think about wars by ship, you know, naval wars. In all maritime wars up into the mid-19th century, the merchant shipping of belligerent enemy powers would suffer losses under this guerre de course. It was fair game. And that continued uh, up until 1856. It was brought to an end by an international agreement called the Declaration of Paris in 1856. Uh, all these European countries signed onto this to end this uh, practice of the right to seize the ships and material of the enemy. Except that in 1856, one nation refused to sign this agreement. What nation was that? Just guess. No, that was 1856. America. It wasn't just European powers. America refused to sign this declaration in 1856. And as a result, 
U.S. merchant shipping suffered greatly during the Civil War because when the, the Union and the Confederacy were fighting each other in the Civil War, they upheld this old rule. So that meant that if you're in Union territory, let's say a Union ship gets into Confederate territory or whatever, or there's a, there's a Confederate ship out there, they observe this right to seize by force the material and the ship of the enemy and vice versa. And this actually decimated the uh, commercial U.S. merchant shipping during that time, right? So a form of this, what we call in French guerre de course, a form of this was actually reinstated during the Hague Convention in 1907 when it was agreed upon among the signatories that merchant ships of a belligerent power could, once again, be taken for war service as armed merchant cruisers. So they basically uh, reinstated it with the understanding that, yeah, we reserve the right to take the enemy ship and then use it for our own military. We just, we roll up on your ship with, with guns and okay, it's ours now. And that was recognized as part, part, part of the course of war. It was recognized. So even by modern standards, the caravan raids were acts of war against an aggressing party. So it's no different from what has been used by multiple nations for generations. The only difference is that the caravan raids have something far greater than this maritime law. It has the explicit permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah ta'ala permitted this and sanctioned it. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa conveyed that. So these raids were to regain what was taken generally, whether direct property or the value. It was also to make a show of force as a deterrent to give Quraysh pause, to let them know, to, as we say today, to put them on notice that yeah, this is not this is not Mecca pre-Hijrah. You know, we're not going to let you just, you know, run over us. We're going to we will defend ourselves. And it was also to ease that financial burden in the new Muslim community so that they could have economic independence. So in none of these cases were the Muslims robbing innocent people or pillaging towns and villages. There's no narrations like that. Not a single narration shows you the Sahaba going and just taking from uh, non-combatants, innocent people. They're taking from the caravans of the enemy, those people who were direct participants in the persecution of the Muslims, taking these things. And this was basically a permission from Allah and a time of war. So that, I hope, situates the caravan raids uh, in, with, a, with a proper understanding in a proper context and we, we want to go back now to lead up to the Battle of Badr you can't just jump into a discussion about the Battle of Badr without talking about the other Ghazawat and Saraya and chiefly the Ghazwa of, or the, the Sariyatun Nakhla the Nakhla expedition because that became the trigger that led to the Battle of Badr so we'll just recap on some of these that we talked about in the previous class and then get to that one. Uh, without going through all of the details of, that we mentioned in the previous class, we'll just list them again. The first uh, Sariya 
was that of Sayyiduna Hamza radiallahu anhu to the seashore. And this was in Ramadan, seven months after the Hijrah. He went with around 30 other troops to intercept a caravan and Abu Jahl and 300 others were there. But a neutral party came in and basically prevented conflict from erupting. So it became a stalemate. And it was, this was the very first one. So Abu Jahl knows he was there. So he returns to Mecca, alarming Quraysh, telling them what's going on. That, listen, this, this may become a thing. We have to be careful here. So the next one was that of Ubaidah ibn al-Harith to a place called the Rabikh. This was in Shawwal. The Prophet sent 60 to 80 people. And this place, Rabigh, is about 10 miles from Juhfa. And there they met Abu Sufyan ibn Harb and Ikirama ibn Abi Jahl, along with 200 other people. But this wasn't the stalemate. It was actually a fight where they were firing arrows at, e at each other, but no one got killed. It basically became a stalemate after that, after they were firing arrows. And in that expedition was the Sahabi Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas radiallahu anhu, and he was the first one to release an arrow, being the first Rami, the first archer to fire an arrow, fi sabilillah, in the history of Islam. So that's the second one. We come to the third one, which was by Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas radiallahu anhu to a place called Al-Kharrar in the month of Dhul Qi'dah or Dhul Qa'dah, and the Prophet ﷺ sent Sa'ad with 20 men of the Muhajirun to intercept a caravan. And he told them not to go beyond this place, Kharrar, and they went on foot. They walked for about five days. And when they arrived, the caravan had already passed. They were too late, so nothing happened. And they went back to Medina. So these were all Saraya expeditions. So what, again, what is the difference between a Sariya and a Ghazwa? What's the difference? The Sariya is not with the presence of the Prophet When he is there, it's called a Ghazwa. So these are the first Saraya. The first Ghazwa is after this. And it is the Ghazwa that comes in the month of Safar where Hamza carried the war banner and the Prophet ﷺ left Sa'ad ibn Ubadah in charge of Medina and they went with 70 Muhajirun to intercept a caravan. They reached a place called Abwa, but nothing came of it. So you find there's lots of these where they're getting to a place and they miss them just by a day or so. And that actually plays a role in what leads up to Badr because there's this, it's almost like a cat and mouse chase, especially when the Quraysh are, they know that the Muslims are moving here and there. Abu Sufyan takes advantage of that, thinking that he has outwitted the Muslims, not realizing that he fell into a trap. And we'll get to that when we talk about Badr. So although nothing came of that Ghazwa, so we say Ghazwa, it wasn't actually a battle because it wasn't fighting, but we call it Ghazwa. Though there was no fighting, though nothing happened, something of value did happen, and that was a treaty that was drawn up between the Prophet ﷺ and the tribe in that locality called Banu Damra, and they became allies. So that's expanding the influence of the Muslim community in Medina 
to areas outside of Medina because they have these alliances now. After that comes the Ghazwa of Buat, which was exactly a year after the Hijrah. And Sa'ad carried the liwa, the banner, and Sa'ad bin Mu'adh was left in charge of Medina. The Prophet ﷺ went with 200 troops to intercept a caravan headed by Umayyah bin Khalaf. And the enemy had 100 uh, men, and it is said they had 2,500 camels. That is a lot of money. 2,500 camels. And they went out there to intercept them and to take these camels, but they had passed. They got there too late. And then we come to the Ghazwa of Ushayra, which was 16 months after the Hijrah. And Hamza went out with the Liwa, and Abu Salama was in charge of Medina. The Prophet went out with 150 to 200 people with only 30 camels. And they took turns riding these camels and walking. And the, the background here is that this would have been a bigger win and a lot more wealth than the previous one of Bawat because intelligence reports had stated from the people going out as scouts that the bulk of Quraysh's wealth was tied up in the investments within this caravan headed north. Because you understand, these trips are taking place yearly to the north and to the south. So let's say you are a person living in Mecca and you have a bit of wealth on the side. What would you do? The smart thing to do would be to give that wealth to those going on the caravan so they can invest it in the trade and bring you back a profit. And that's what people were doing. And that's why they were going up north with so much wealth. It was not just their own wealth. It was the wealth of others from Quraysh that were giving it to them to invest in the trade. So they reached the area, but guess what happened? Again, that caravan had passed before they reached it. And the Prophet wasallam later set out for this caravan on its return from Sham and that is actually what's leading up to Badr, right? So this is a long trip. We're talking weeks and weeks leading up to these things. So the Prophet ﷺ, there was another incident where a man came and stole some sheep and killed a man and they went to find him and that became, that became known as the Ghazwa of Safawan. Uh, that wasn't really a battle so much as it was an attempt to uh, apprehend that individual. So we've covered all of these before. We, we went through them one by one in the previous class. We're just recapping them now. We want to end with what leads up to Badr. And this was known as the Ghazwa or the battle or expedition of Abdullah ibn Jahsh to Nakhla. The expedition of Abdullah ibn Jahsh to Nakhla. This is the first battle in which blood is shed. There was a battle before where arrows were fired, but no blood was shed. This is the first one where blood is shed, but it wasn't supposed to be a fight. It was supposed to be an intelligence gathering mission, but it ended up turning into a fight because of a ta'wil, because of a faulty interpretation of the best course of action. And there are certain lessons in this for us, as we see in this story. In the month of Rajab, the Prophet ﷺ sent Abdullah bin Jahsh to Nakhla with 12 men. 
And he wrote a document for Abdullah bin Jash. He had it written for him and told him not to read the document until two days had passed after they left Medina. So, you know, a letter, you're not supposed to open it until two days later. So he's told, open the letter two days later after you leave and obey what is stated in the letter. But do not force your travel companions to comply with it. So Abdullah bin Jahsh was, was responsible for implementing it, but he couldn't force the others to do what is in the content of the letter. So he goes, and two days later, he opens the letter as they're on their way. And it says, go until you reach Nakhla between Mecca and Ta'if and observe Quraysh. Do you see what happened here? They are basically told to go in the general direction without being told where. That was kept a secret. That is revealed in the letter, but he only finds out two days after they've been on the journey going south. Two days later, he opens it and it says, Go to Nakhla, which is between Mecca and Ta'if, to observe Quraysh. This is only for reconnaissance. It's like a recon mission. So he's with his travel companions and he says to them, the Prophet ﷺ forbade me from forcing any of you to go. So whoever wants to go and potentially attain shahada, martyrdom, then let him come with me. And whoever doesn't want to go, you can go back. So what do you think happened? How many got two days out and said, mm, I think I'll go back? Not a single one. All of them said, let's go, let's do this. And so they all proceed to go to this, this area of Nakhla. So they're making their way to Nakhla and they reach this place called Furur. And Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas and Utbah ibn Ghazawan lost the camel that they were using, that they were taking turns riding. So, okay, a group of 12, they're making their way on foot and on camel, covering a vast distance. They're stopping somewhere. <laughs> they, they lose the camel uh, now they're held back looking for it so they're looking for the camel the rest of the group is proceeding forward so they're being held back so you have 10 people ahead and you have these two Sa'ad and Utbah behind looking for the camel Abdullah ibn Jahsh radiallahu anhu he continues on and he passes this caravan of Quraysh and it's filled with animal hides and raisins and goods and other property. Now, you, you got to put yourself in this situation. You know, if you drive on the highway today and you get out at a rest area and see an absolute stranger, it doesn't matter. It's a stranger, like whatever. They're in their car going on some trip and you're going on some trip. But if you're in the desert and there's no rest areas like that and there's no police force, and you see strangers, you don't know what tribe they belong to, you don't know what's their, what their intentions are, so you're, 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 you're checking them out and maybe you're suspicious about them. So here they are, they're getting to this area called Furur, and uh, Abdullah ibn Jahsh, they get to this uh, caravan, and the people in the caravan of Quraysh, they see them, they don't know who they are, so they get uneasy. So one of the people on the trip, Rukasha ibn Mihsan radiallahu anhu, 
he had actually shaved his head before he got to this place. Why do you think he did that? Why would he shave his head before getting to this area as they're approaching Mecca? What would he look like? He would look like someone who had performed Umrah, who had performed Umrah and who had left. So they would see him. This is kind of a psychological operation, right? They see him with a shaved head. They would immediately think, oh, well, he's, you know, he was just in Mecca. He just did an Umrah and shaved his head because that was still a practice. So they probably feel at ease, right? So this was a way to ease their fears. It was a psychological tactic. So seeing him, they felt more at ease and they said to each other, okay, let's not be afraid, it's okay. And so because they felt at ease, what did they do? The Quraysh, this Quraishi group with the caravan, they felt more relaxed, so they just let the camels roam and do their thing. Okay, now you know what's going to happen because the camels are roaming. You just take the caravan, why not? You know, if, if we can take it and they're at ease, we take it, it's property that was seized, or it's the value, this is the enemy force, do it. However, before we get to that part of the story, we have to go back at the, and look at the date. What month did this happen? Rajab. And it was the last day of Rajab. Okay, what else is Rajab? It's a sacred month. A sacred month in which fighting is forbidden. So now they have a dilemma. Taking this is not going to be so easy. You can't just walk up and take it. You're probably going to have to fight these people. And that may lead to bloodshed. This will be combat. This will be a military operation. But how can you do that in Rajab? It's a sacred month. Now, go back to that letter. What did the Prophet say to do? Observe. Did he say, get into a fight? There's no instruction. Follow the instruction. Just observe the enemy movement and report back. But they see this opportunity. They're like, you know, we could do this. But they're worried. Okay, it's Rajab. If we don't, if we, if we don't, if we do this, it's the last day of Rajab. It's a sacred month. But if we wait until tomorrow when it's not, they're going to leave. And we won't be able to intercept this caravan. So here's this dilemma. But you can already see the, the misjudgment because nowhere in the letter did the Prophet say, do any of that. He just said, observe and report back. So they're having this conversation about what they should do back and forth. And they decided to make a move. To make a move and go fight them and capture this caravan. And they made their move. And arrows were fired and there was fighting. And Waqid ibn Abdullah al-Tamimi shot with an arrow and killed Amr al-Hadrami. So Waqid is Sahabi. Waqid ibn Abdullah, he fires an arrow and kills Amr al-Hadrami, one of Quraysh. So others among Quraysh were captured in this fight and others escaped. Abdullah ibn Jahsh took the camels and those things and went back to Medina. They get back to Medina and Abdullah bin Jahsh wants to go directly to the Prophet and give him some of what they captured. But the Prophet sees what was captured and he said to them, I did not order you to kill in the sacred month. 
I did not order this. And he refused the goods that they had captured, and he refused to accept these prisoners of war that they captured. Now these Muslims were feeling horrible because they realized the misjudgment they made, this miscalculation, and their brothers from the Muhajirun and the Ansar were scolding them now. How could you do that? And Quraysh got in on the mix too because obviously they lost some of their own. Those who escaped went back to Mecca and informed them what happened. And now Quraysh are going around saying, Muhammad and his companions violated the sacred month and shed blood in it and took spoils and prisoners of war in a sacred month. Which is kind of ironic because they were playing games with the months already to justify their own fights. But that's typical, you know. Your enemy will use anything against you. And sometimes they use things against you that have an element of truth to it. If you legitimately mess up, they'll use that against you too. They won't just make up things. So they're talking like this. And some of the Muslims remaining in Mecca, because not everyone was able to make the hijrah, some of these Muslims in Mecca were trying to defend their brothers in Medina and said, uh, well, they did what they did in Sha'ban. What comes after Rajab? Sha'ban. They did what they did in Sha'ban. It wasn't actually Rajab because it was the last day. So here you have the Muslims making that misjudgment. They're scolded by their brothers. The Prophet ﷺ refuses to accept what they had. And Quraysh are saying that the Prophet ﷺ and his companions, they are fighting in the sacred month and doing all of this. So these different people are in the mix. And now you have the Yahud getting into the mix. Now the Yahud in Medina, they are looking at this as observers and they begin to look for the, the fa'al. You know, the fa'al is like looking for the omen in the situation and what it presages or possibly predicts about their future. So they're looking at what happened and they begin to look at what this might mean for them by drawing omens, looking at words. So they said, okay, who was killed? Do you remember the name of the, the Qurayshi who was killed? Amr al-Hadrami. So they say Amr al-Hadrami was killed by Waqid ibn Abdullah. Amr means that war is going to thrive because Amr can mean to thrive or for something to be fulfilled or filled. And Hadrami indicates that the war is present because Hadrami, Hadir, Hadir is present. You see what they're doing here? They're taking the meaning of the word and trying to intuit something from it to figure out what's going on. So Amr, okay, it's filled or it's being fulfilled or present and then present. And then who killed Amr al-Hadrami? It was uh, Waqid. And what does Waqid mean? They said Waqid means that war has been ignited from Waqad, you know, Waqud, to be like fuel that's ignited. So they're reading from these names that War has started. It is now on. And that's what they did. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala turned those interpretations against them. And talk about this incident began to spread among the people. And people were asking until Allah ta'ala revealed the verse in Surah Al-Baqarah that we read in the beginning of the class. يَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الشَّهْرِ الْحَرَامِ قِتَارٍ فِي They ask you about fighting during the sacred months. 
say fighting during it is deplorable. It's a major sin. And to bar others from the path of Allah and to disbelieve in Him and to prevent access to the, the Holy Mosque and to expel its people from it are greater enormities in the sight of Allah and persecution is worse than killing. There's a great lesson in this verse and we've touched on it. We, we actually, there's a whole khutbah I did some years back looking at this verse. Uh, you know, this verse is very instructive about how we respond to people saying that we have done something wrong when they have also done something wrong. Right? Have you ever heard someone say, I agree that this is wrong, but whenever you use the word but, it's like you've canceled out whatever you said before that. I agree that this and that is wrong and immoral and horrible, but when you say but to the, uh, to the ears, to the listener, it's like you're belittling and canceling whatever you just said was bad. So instead of saying but, Allah gives us the instruction, what you should say. Notice he doesn't say, uh, they ask you about the sacred months. Say fighting during it is deplorable. Walakin. Allah does not say walakin. He says, يَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الشَّهْرِ الْحَرَامِ قِتَالٍ فِيهِ قُلْ قِتَالٌ فِيهِ كَبِيرٌ Fighting in those months is a major sin. وَصَدٌ عَنْ سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَكُفْرٌ بِهِ إِلَىٰ آخِرِ الْآيَةِ And, and, barring people from the path of Allah, and disbelieving in Him, and these things are greater in the sight of Allah. When you say and, you're adding the important point but you're not canceling out what you affirmed by using the word but. So it's a very important lesson in communication. You know, someone's mad at you for something you did and they're also doing bad things and you're, you're arguing with them. Don't say, yeah, you know, I, I messed up, but you're not gonna get anywhere that way. You can say, yes, I messed up and I believe you also messed up and we both messed up and we should find a way out of this. That way they don't feel like you're ignoring or denying or minimizing what you just affirmed. So there's a lesson in that. So Allah Ta'ala uses the word and and does not use the word but. And when this verse was revealed, the caravan was kept and the two prisoners were ransomed and one of them would end up becoming Muslim. So this is the lead up to Badr. This actually triggered the, the, the battle of Badr, the great battle of Badr. Badr al-Furqan, the day of the great decisive victory where truth was made clear from falsehood. So leading up to this, from this point forward, we're looking at what leads up to Badr and then the battle of Badr. Uh, and there's so many lessons in that story uh, that it will probably take us about three sessions just to look at Badr itself. والله ورسوله أعلم صلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم الحمد لله You have your three questions? You're thinking? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. 
it's very important that we understand how those things took effect. Because the Prophet ﷺ, in conveying the Qur'an and explaining its meanings and uh, transmitting the religion and embodying it, he is also, in all of these actions, embodying ways for the Muslims to be when they have positions of leadership because they're human realities. So he's modeling uh, human possibilities and how to uh, adequately and properly respond to them. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put the prophets, all of them, through different tests and tribulations and afflictions. And there are lots of wisdoms for why they endured those things. At Imam Sunusi lists out a whole bunch in Umar Barahin at the end. He talks about the benefits of them suffering sickness and hunger and pain and expulsion. All of these things had wisdoms. And a part of that is at uh, you know, that we are consoled in the bad things and obstacles that we face. So he's modeling in those things how we should be when they happen to us. And we'll be exploring that when we look at some of the intricate details of the Battle of Badr. Because there are a few key issues that some people get wrong, uh, particularly with regards to the ransoming of the captives of Badr and uh, different ways of understanding that. We have to situate that in the big picture of him modeling for the community the ways of acting when they are uh, in positions of leadership and dealing with these uh, political decisions involving war and economics and interactions with other peoples. Yeah. And it's a lesson for the Muslims that, you know, the asbab don't have independent efficacy. So your trust is in Allah. You go, you don't find them, right? If, if everything was just victory, 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 and everything just... I mean, they could have just all become Muslim in, in Mecca and there wouldn't have been any struggle whatsoever. But the reason why there's struggle is because that's a human reality. So he's modeling how to respond to these human realities for in his lifetime, for every subsequent generation after him in the entire history of the Ummah going forward. Yeah. Yeah, theologically, theologically, morality is grounded in God. And God legislates these things. And that's the end of the story for a believer. But we also observe wisdoms. We, we observe uh, material causes uh, that uh, justify that from different perspectives. Right? My, my follow-up is just... I'm sorry. One small one. During Ashur al-Haram, at this point in time, mm-hmm. how would is there something different that we need to do? I mean, obviously, trying to abstain. I don't know if we should be abstaining from quarreling. It's not like we're out killing people. But uh, what should we do as Muslims in this day and age during the Ashur al-Haram? Is there anything any we need to observe? And then 
how would that apply, for example, to individuals that are being oppressed around the world? Our believers, our Muslim brothers and sisters that are oppressed every single day in the world. What do they follow? What is ordained upon them in Palestine, in Iraq, etc., etc.? This is very early on. And many of, the, many of the rules and regulations governing warfare are legislated through the subsequent years. So understand that things are changed, things are abrogated, and what we have in our, uh, our fiqh, our sharia norms today represent the, what the Muslims should be doing in all of those avenues of life. So when you look at the seerah, you can't look at a single period, uh, you can't freeze it and make it the absolute norm in terms of legal rulings when certain legal rulings are, uh, we can say, that, I don't want to use the word developed, but they're things revealed later that uh, solidify the details of Sharia, right? At this time, you know, certain things weren't an obligation and certain things were not allowed, right? Even with respect to fighting, and that developed too, so. Oh, he, he was asking about uh, the relevancy of Al-Ashur Al-Hurum, the, the four sacred months for us today in, in terms of these conflicts and whatnot. And I, I just said that you know, the Sharia, as it is preserved and codified today, that, that enshrines how we behave. Because these rules and regulations, the, they, they were revealed in a gradual manner. So you can't just take one part of the seerah, freeze it, and apply it for all times when you're looking at fiqhi details. Yeah. Uh, my question is, when, uh, uh, when in the Nakhla, when they captured the prisons, go, the goats and the prisoners, what happened? Is it going to be in the next class? Or? Yeah, we'll talk about it, inshallah, because uh, one of those prisoners becomes Muslim. And... We'll talk about prisoners a lot pretty soon because there's going to be quite a number of them, and what happens to them. What yakum? Alhamdulillah.